Greetings and a warm welcome to Intersections, where our aspiration is to dissolve the boundaries between inner and outer, east and west, profit and purpose, and so much more to get us to our full potential. Because it is when we are able to destroy you know, these walls that confine us sometimes to some limiting ways of thinking and being that we can actually see the big picture and see the full potentialities of who we could become as humanity, as communities, and as individuals. Today, it is my pleasure to have in our midst Todd Cashton. Todd is among the world's top experts on the psychology of well-being, psychological strengths, mental agility, and social relationships as a professor of psychology and the founder of the Wellbeing Lab at George Mason University. He has an active blog called Curious in Psychology Today, which is enjoyed by more than 4 million readers. His work has been featured on leading media like the Harvard Business Review, The Guardian, Forbes, New York Times, and Fast Company. And he has been the author of a number of popular books such as Curious, uh, The Upside of Your Dark Side, and Designing Positive Psychology. His latest book, which is going to be the subject of a conversation today, is called The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. In this book, he's synthesizing decades of psychological research on how we can improve the health of our organizations and society by being courageous enough to question the status quo from time to time and instill in ourselves the intelligence to know when and how to push for change. Here's a quote to start us off. Todd shares in his book, he says, if nobody deviated in principled ways from society's prescribed script, civilized life would be less interesting and inspiring in addition to just being less safe and just and prosperous. Let's invite Todd into our midst. Todd, it's a great pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. So good to be here. How's it going for you? This is um, an exciting moment um, because you've got this new book out. I think it very much speaks to the need of the hour, the art of insubordination, how to dissent and defy effectively. How's it going on the book uh, talk circuit so far? I mean, we're only 10 days in and it always seems that it's the exact right time for a book on insubordination to come out. I mean, we're in the midst of a Ukrainian invasion and we're in the midst of a bunch of culture wars and I don't think anyone's ever said at any point in history we're chill we're good and we don't need anyone to dissent and rebel yeah it's funny you say that because sometimes I do wonder are we making too much out of the present times in terms of the awareness that uh, the old order is changing and so much ferment and re-assembly um, of like what life should be about you know is going on around us and yet I do feel in the arc of at least the bounded life journey that, you know, that I've had and, you know, you have even less decades, you know, packed under your belt, that we are living through a period of tremendous ferment. I mean, relative to anything I've seen over the last several years. It might be the concentration of intolerance and negative emotionality and problems. There's a question in terms of historic, historical wise, whether now is more chaotic than other times. I think the the speed and transmission of information has made the at least the perception of it as if we, we live in the most polarized times possible. But I always, as a student of history, I always like to refer back as, as polarized as politics are now. If you go back to the 1800s and the 1700s, the way you, solved, you resolved the conflict was you whipped out two pistols and you had a duel and someone was going to die. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think keeping that historical perspective in mind is so valuable um, because, um, you know, I, I see a lot of pain, you know, in um, people who are seeking to create a more purer, more, more human, more beautiful world and about certain things going on in the present times. But when you put it in the context of history, 
um, and have that sort of grounded perspective, you actually realize there's there's still a lot to be grateful for, much as we need to move the world um, you know, forward. What is your general view of, of where we are today in the history of humanity? Well, you captured something really important, which is you need to be able to hold more than one of views at the same time. And one of the things that, for example, Harvard scientists coined the phrase prevalence-induced concept creep. And what that means is, is that as we accomplish more progressive aims over the course of time, we were to look at a chart right now on the screen, you would see that it's one of the lowest rates of murders in the history of humanity. Same for kidnapping, same for robbery, same for sexual assaults. And yet it feels as if it's no better than it ever was. And it's no worse. It's, it's, it's only getting worse over the course of time. As we get successive changes and as we improve society little by little, our lens becomes more molecular at discovering smaller and smaller problems that we have issues with. So at once, it was very simple in terms of you would have a fountain for a water fountain for colored people and a water fountain for people that were white. Well, you can solve that crisis. And then now you notice of, OK, well, the ratio of the number of college students who are black versus the number of people who are in entry level jobs in a Fortune 500 companies, the prevalence is off. So it may feel as if there's no problem considering what it was like in the past. But what you are is you're more fine grained and precise and detecting where the difficulties lie. And that's a good thing. And we can also be grateful simultaneously for just how much societal changes has occurred when it comes to sex, gender, race, and sexual orientation. What that sort of sparks in me is this question, which you as a student of both science and history, I wonder if you have a point of view on, which is when change does happen in society, because if you think about some of the data points you've shared with us about where things used to be versus where they are, what's causing that change? Is it some kind of just a natural mass like evolution of consciousness? Or are there certain figures who made certain conscious choices and envisioned a certain like brighter, better future before everybody else did, who actually pulled the world forward in that direction? What's your thought on that? So there's no clear answer. But if as if you look at the data, which is I mean, I'm trained as a scientist, it's very clear that it's this comes to social norms is one of the big the big factors in society. And so you only have to go back about five generations of United States presidents. And the notion was you can be in the military if you're gay, but you have to disacknowledge publicly that you're not heterosexual will we'll allow you to give up your life, but you can't acknowledge your, your actual central identity. And only on the course of a 10, 15 year period, you have you move from gay unions to having allowing anyone of any sexual orientation to get married to each other. And what we forget is very small people, small people in terms of they're not known names, they're not known entities, but they did something. They, they changed people's minds. And over the course of time, when a concentrated number of minorities influences public opinion in a concentrated area, it starts to permeate, it starts to expand itself, as, you, as you're saying, in terms of the collective consciousness of society. And what you found is that as, as it spread from San Francisco and New York City and Chicago, some of the core central areas where people felt comfortable being publicly 
non-heterosexual because they could find their set set of peers. Over time, people get to actually interact with a neighbor who's gay and they actually have dinner. And all of a sudden, after talking to a physicist, they realize, oh, I didn't know you were gay. And you realize it's an inconsequential, tangential variable that has no relevance to their area of expertise, their strengths, their talents, their contributions to society. So the small singular face-to-face -face interactions, they start to pay dividends over the course of time. And it's hard to trace the origins because it really is singular people altering their viewpoint. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, what I really like about that model is this idea that um, you don't have to be epic. You know, you don't have to be larger than life. You don't have to aspire for some kind of world stage. But even in your own uh, sphere of influence, whatever that might be in your neighborhood, in your community, in your family or whatever, go out and make positive change happen and you are going to be shaping history. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example from my nine-year-old daughter's her elementary school where a good friend of mine, um, his daughter had Down syndrome and she passed away tragically from the flu about eight years ago. And in honor of her, they put a bench, it's Jillian's bench, it's in the schoolyard. And so one of the strategies for dealing with the cultural norm of the epidemic of loneliness in society is there's a single purple bench, which was Jillian's favorite color. And if you can't, if you can't find someone to play with on the playground, you, it is a social norm. If you sit on that bench, you, you are basically waiting for someone to be socially heroic enough to say, I can go to someone outside of my social group, bring someone in and be virtuous, kind, compassionate and generous and find potentially a new friend that happens there. We shouldn't step away from how much of a social norm shift that is, because even for me in the 1980s growing up, bullying was so prevalent. The, the idea that you would actually approach the kid that was sitting by themselves reading a book on the side and ask them to play with you was an anathema. And now you have an actual bench, a formal, a formal mechanism that allows loneliness to subside in children. And then here becomes the very interesting question. Over time, how does that change the trajectory of children's identities about themselves and viewing the world as a potentially benevolent place by the simple act of being pulled from the bench into a social circle? And the reason that I bring this up is not just as an example of principled rebellion, but as an example of very small behaviors can have these powerful compounding changes in the course of individual lives, much less groups in society. Yeah. So not just um, hidden heroes that exist in society, but also just like hidden moments, hidden actions. You know, you're talking about small little micro shifts or changes that can propagate through the system. How beautiful. Yeah, yeah. because I think it's important to, you know, we have the president of Ukraine. And if you listen to his speeches, most people would say they have never heard such bravery in their lifetimes of a leader who actually puts on military garb and actually fights on the front lines and then is was a stand-up comedian previously to being a, a president and is humorous and somber and and dedicated and committed and that's one form of thinking about how can we improve society but it's it's almost he's so impressive 
he just reminds you of the Martin Luther Kings and the Malcolm X's and the Harriet Tubman's where that's not attainable. So it's important to also pay attention to the very small little things that we can do in terms of inviting people into our world who maybe are having mental health difficulties and having less stigma about mental health problems where you can actually ask people about their depression because you don't view that they're dysfunctional. You view it as that it's a normal part of the human condition and it's normal to seek help and it's normal to ask for help. And when we balance the big the big changes and the small changes, we can have a greater sense of agency that we can actually do something when we wake up in the morning. Yeah, yeah. You have taken this quest for you know having us like create a better world and you have formalized it into into a piece of math which is beautiful because my passion in college was was math. I was a math major and um you know I I love it when I see the precision and the formalism that sometimes it can offer and so would you be open to sharing with us the uh, math formula that you've established for what it takes to be successful at this kind of change making? Yeah, it's it's really about distinguishing between I mean everybody thinks they're principled in their rebellions against the status quo and this is really about distinguishing between those dysfunctional approaches versus those constructive approaches. And so it is, if you transform things into a mathematical formula, you can see where are the points where we can intervene to alter cultures and alter individuals so that they are more inclined to do good for the world as to be complacent. So principled insubordination, the equation from, from 60 years of science is the first part is deviance is that you, you there are essentially there are norms rules or authority figures that you view as barriers to your well-being or the well-being of other people and you you have a different perspective on things so that's like a fundamental part deviance plus authenticity plus contribution and so the authenticity part is this has to be something that you're pursuing because it is fundamental to your identity. It's fundamental to your values. And it's not something that you're doing just to win likes on social media or just to win social approval and status within a group. That's not authenticity. Now, it's part of being human is that you care about the groups that you identify with. But authenticity is about these are fundamental central values and from those values you derive goals that you want to work towards so is it about justice is it about fairness is it about reducing harm is it about being a steward of a healthy environment is it about um, being a kind compassionate person that is even considers forgiveness and reconciliation for people who do wrongdoings doings we all have a different structure of values when you act in accordance with those deep cherished interests and values you're on the path to a principled rebel status. And the final part in that numerator of this equation is contribution. Is It's very easy to point out the problems in society. But the question is, are you working to reduce the gap, the chasm between how the world is now and this utopian vision of how you see the world could be? And that constructive view is a fundamental part of being a principled as opposed to an unprincipled rebel. And just to add more to the equation, what makes it difficult is in the denominator is social pressure. There is pressure to be part of the herd. And there's this great body of work that says one of the reasons that we conform is because, Hatendra, if you ask a question and I, and I answer with this outlandish response where I just start talking about my favorite music and my favorite movies, I make the social interaction 
more difficult for you. It requires you to have more effort. It's awkward. It's cringeworthy. And then whatever you respond to me is going to be difficult for me. So we're all, we're both be expending a ton of energy if we don't conform to a little bit of semi-structure in our conversation. And this is for society. So conformity has its benefit. And people push you to be conformist because you make the world less effortful. If you follow between the lines, say what you're supposed to say that's socially acceptable and don't dissent with what's the typical belief system of the people around you. And what I would argue is you have to have the courage to resist that social pressure to make the life easy for people because that friction is the early harbinger of social evolution. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, I had um, uh, for a while been studying the, uh, you know, the art and science of, you know, uh, impactful communication. And one of the things I, I uh, stumbled into there was how great communicators kind of meet people where they are. You know, they don't uh, invite people to take a big, huge leap, you know, into some top of a mountain, right, from where they can see things in a very rarefied and beautiful way. But like for people, it might be just a big leap. And so um, what you're saying is really that's even how change is uh, manifested, you know, and how you can insubordinate, but in a healthy, constructive, positive, respectful way in the context of the conditions and that people are sort of right now, you know, kind of invested in. Yeah, I'm hearing from you. The idea that uh, you understand where people are and then and then seek to just push enough to be able to get some early traction and momentum rather than kind of break the system apart. A lot of innovators make this misstep is that they go for high level of novelty, high level of complexity, and high level of of switching costs where it's going to be hard to switch gears. And so when we when we ask for moderate level of novelty, so just just think of just think about how the lexicon has changed about talking about people of color over the course of time. You know, to move from not too long, this is not my language, it's just historical language, but to move from we're talking about colored people and we're going to talk about um, African Americans and then we're talking about blacks and then we're talking about blacks is not acceptable because it's separate, it makes the person their skin color. So you you use it only as a qualifier to say black people are happening this way. These are small moderate novel changes but if you ask for everything in one shot and i know this is a little bit controversial if the, if the switching cost is too difficult and too challenging and effortful you're going to get unnecessary resistance and there's this is this is the part that people have a lot of problems with is that slow inexorable gradual changes is the way so that it actually is sticky and it lasts as opposed to having unnecessary detractors that are barriers to progress. Hmm, hmm, hmm. So um, one of the people that you portrayed who seems to be a master at this craft is uh, Charles Darwin. Um, I recently came across a data point about him that uh, was actually pleasantly surprising for me. I, I don't know if you know Brad Stuhlberg. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Brad's written a book recently called Groundedness. And he profiles how, you know, Darwin took like 15 years, you know, to write his uh, classic on the original species uh, since he finished the, you know, famous voyages that we're all aware of he did. I mean, I had no idea it took him that long. Uh, but your book goes into the reason why and what was happening over the course of those 15 years and the deliberate move that he made to actually hold back. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Because I was just very inspired by 
uh, learning through your work the strategic um, nature of not just the original ideas themselves, but the path towards uh, unfolding and communicating and offering them up to the world? We like to think that our we recognize this function in society. We discover something that's going to be useful. And we often are so excited to share those ideas that we forget that society's not ready for it. I mean, even a better example than Darwin is Galileo. I mean, for Galileo to discover, to challenge, to challenge the church to say, wait, no, the, we have, we have the earth is revolving around, around the, around the sun and not the other way around. Like we're not the center of the universe. Not only was that unaccepted, not only was he basically um, imprisoned, not only was he, was all, were all of his books destroyed, but one of the things that's forgotten about Galileo is it was only, it was 200 years afterwards that the church finally said, hey, let's actually decide whether or not we should actually have some reconciliation and say that Galileo was right. It was only in the 1980s. This, this is only like you know 40 plus years ago where the church finally said we forgive Galileo for his sins we were wrong he was right let's move forward I mean just just think about that concept the world was not ready for science and religion to collide and the world was not ready in some some ways is still not ready to say that you can actually hold multiple beliefs at the same time is you could believe in a higher power and still recognize the objective fact that the world does not revolve around the earth. It's a little bit the other way around in terms of this, in terms of the revolutions that happen there. And we can extend that to other parts of other parts of society and ask the question, is it the right time to reveal these ideas? And if it's not the right time, what is the way to craft that message? But what we can't do effectively is know a truth and assume other people have had the background and the expertise with our deep comprehensive investigation of separating in a centrifuge falsehoods from facts that they're up to speed with us to catch people up and not overwhelm them we have to be pithy and very succinctly say this is why it makes sense that you would treat someone that's gay that's similar to someone's heterosexual this is why um, there's a question of um, social media in some ways, is hijacking children's minds because they're unable to escape from social pressures when they get home because it's still waiting for them after the school day. And what is that doing to children's minds? And what is that doing to their identities when they're constantly worried about their public persona and there's no green room, green room for them to return to where they can let their hair down, take off their makeup, and just be effortlessly themselves. We don't know what that's going to do to people's identities, but we have to start asking the questions so that we can actually try to start making slow modifications where we can have at least semi-permeable boundaries between the public self and the private self for young adults. Yeah, um, I, I love that. I mean, there is so much um, nuance and uh, care with which you have... Uh you know, articulated that path to change. One of the things that I've been working on is a framework for helping people understand the difference between what you might call their private values and their public values. You know, values that you want to put out there uh, to propagate through society because you really feel, you know, it's high time that everyone actually is. And, and then there are values that, you know, you respect the fact that uh, the world may not be ready for them. And maybe they're not the right values for everybody, but they're the right values for you. And um, 
perhaps you can honor them in private and not necessarily practice them in public. I'm not sure if you're aware but, uh, of this story, but um, I'll offer something up to you. Abraham Lincoln, he was um, a teetotaler. You know, he didn't drink. And um, when he became president, you know, there were these, this puritanical movement and they felt like, okay, this is our president. He doesn't like chew tobacco. He doesn't drink. You know, he doesn't do all of this bad stuff. And, uh, you know, as they might have thought it. And uh, so they went to him and asked him if they would, you know, he would propagate that through his presidency in the nation. And he refused. He said, no, that's not, that's not my cause. And then um, there was a point where he was looking at Ulysses Grant to take over, you know, the um, leadership of the uh, Union Army. And um, somebody came up to him and said, Mr. President, but like General Grant, he's a drunk. And, and Lincoln looked at him, well, in that case, you know, he's been winning so many battles, you know, let's go out and discover what brand of whiskey he drinks and let's actually buy enough of it for the whole <laughs> army. You know, the, I, I hadn't heard that story, but there's another one that I really enjoy, which is it's controversial, but history is history is, at, you know, at that error. How do you get Southern people to get on board with the emancipation of slaves? And one of the things that Lincoln did was he engaged in a lot of what they called at the time blacky humor in order to he would he would collect humor about black people at the time and about slaves. He would engage in humor with people in the South. And it wasn't because he believed in those jokes. He, it wasn't because he didn't believe that they were offensive and they were in some ways demoralizing and dehumanizing of people that were black at the time. He did it strategically. He was trying to show, I'm one of you guys. These are guys at the time in terms of voting. And, and I'm not, I understand your cause and I'm going to show that I'm one of you. And because of that, you're going to be more likely to lower your defenses, have a conversation, and we can talk about what concessions I'll make as we work towards the emancipation of slaves that happens there. And there's an interesting counterfactual you can ask about history. As we look back and bemoan the fact that he was engaging in racist humor, what if he didn't engage in those racist jokes with people that were racist at the time in order to win their votes? Would Is it is it worthwhile to make the small sacrifice of engaging in behavior that is counter to the values that you have because you're focusing on the larger war and you're willing to lose a battle in terms of a few conversations where you act in you know slow small moral transgressions in your in your language and your acts because you're focusing on a much more moral and a much more important and a much more difficult cause yeah i mean um I, I love where you're going with this. Um, you know, I've been a passionate, you know, student of Lincoln um, as well, and I can see you are. And um, the exquisite, you know, path to like getting to the outcomes that he got to uh, with the nuance and the structure. Anyway, it's just it's just so so inspiring, you know, to see. And and what you're talking about there is uh, was one of the very maturing kind of moments for me, just to understand, you know, what a leader has to do or what any change maker has to do. Um, you know, I, I, I recall how uh, Frederick. Douglas, right? The, the formerly enslaved man, who you know as much as I, was a very inspiring figure at that time as well in helping to advance the cause of abolition, having fleed you know from slavery himself. Um, he was very against Lincoln initially because of what he saw is a lack of responsiveness and engagement and push from Lincoln's side. But at the time that Lincoln passed away, and you know through those years that he befriended him, he changed his heart and mind about Lincoln and realized that actually he was the exact leader who the country needed not running too fast to like just 
destroy everything, break the country into two, and then slavery continues to exist in the South. And yes, it's not there in the North, but what does that do to help the people who are still enslaved in the South versus, versus those who are wanting to stick on to the past, right? He, he was just like navigating that very razor's edge in such a beautiful way. I'm so glad you brought up Frederick Douglass because I've been I've been trying to bring up his I mean it's Black History Month that just passed so I've been trying to really talk about them as much as possible you know the, these uh, purveyors of history these agents that actually are ignored in most of the history books yeah. but I love that you're getting to some of the dark parts is that there's another part of Frederick Douglass story I feel like we're just adding Lego blocks to each other for this huge massive uh -huh. space set here. Yeah. When Frederick Douglass was emancipated as a slave or left or just left the plantation to move to the north, the abolitionists brought him everywhere and saying, listen, he is here is this this learned man who taught himself how to read and tell him how to write. And they would bring him almost as if he was a circus stage performer and they would bring him from city to city. And there would be a bunch of white men that would introduce him and say, you know, here is Frederick Douglass. He's. He's like us in terms of his intellect. And eventually, Frederick Douglass realizes, I'm not, I'm a free man. And when I'm with you, the abolitionist, in terms of a cause that you feel a sense of meaning about, but you don't understand what it's like to actually experience enslavement, I don't want to be your, your character and your marionette to play with. And so he abandoned them. And it, it completely unheard of. As a black man, you have solo public speaking tours around around the north and yeah. small cities and small environments. And he was always his own man. And just as you said, part of being your own man, truly free, is that as your views evolve, you are willing to publicly acknowledge with the sense of intellectual humility that what I said about Lincoln three weeks ago. I've thought more about it. I've talked to people. I've changed my mind, and I'm going to acknowledge that. And there's a question about in society now, for as much as we lionize icons like as Frederick Douglass, do we allow the same level of freedom for individuals to change their mind, or do we hold them imprisoned to the views that we hate the most that they've held in the past and don't allow them? the space and autonomy to grow as a person? And then what are the consequences when we don't allow our public figures and leaders to grow and evolve in their positions? I uh, really, really uh, value that, that thought. Um, it's, been, um, it's been weighing on me as well, the quick rush to judgment and um, you know, cancellation, et cetera, that we are engaged in today. And you know, I recognize some of that logic because in some cases, um, some of these you know, quick public acts of contrition can appear a little bit inauthentic and rushed and a little bit more guided by the media team, you know, relations team, rather than the individual making a soul-searching journey from within. But, you know, there are soul-searching journeys people make. And when Nelson Mandela died, I was honored to write a piece about him in, you know, the Sunday Times in South Africa and here for Fortune on, on his journey. And I pretty much documented all his flaws, you know, and all his mistakes. And But at the same time, the trajectory, right, which was you know, rising up and up and up and how he ascended to a really noble and beautiful place. But till pretty much the end, he was making, you know, judgment calls, some of which were right and some of which were not right. And he was, but the main thing was that he was, to your point, acknowledging as, as soon as he discovered that he was, um, you know, kind of mistaken about something and he was comfortable to adjust and uh, apologize and move on. And uh, that is what made him over time so, so great as a leader. Uh, so I, I love that thought. Wait, I'm I'm curious um, because I, I'm not I'm not as well versed in, in Mandela's life, uh, other than the, the parts that most people learn in, in school. When when he made those mistakes as a leader, 
uh, what was the public res- what, what were the mistakes and how did the public respond at the time? Yes, it's it's a, it's a great point. So, for example, one of the mistakes he made was um, that he, um, you know, went to a certain part of Africa where they had had a dictatorial government and they were moving into a democracy. And he really pushed the case for the dictator to be the elected new, you know, democratic president. Uh, and um, you know, it was not well received by the public. And uh, in fact, in the elections, that dictator lost. And then he went back, you know, and he later on, he apologized, you know, to the public in that country. And he said, you know, during the apartheid uh, fight that we had when I was in prison, um, this gentleman, you know, this dictator that you had here was um, actually really active in helping support our cause. And I felt a sense of loyalty, you know, towards him. And uh, at the same time, I realized now upon reflection that it does not give me the right to actually in any way come into your world and tell you who you should elect as your democratic you know, president, just because I had a loyalty to what it is that he did for me at that time. So I realized that that was an error when I came here and uh, you know, kind of promoted a certain thesis on who you should elect. And I apologize about that. And they were very heartwarmed about that because they had been deeply pained and disappointed in like a Mandela that they saw as a larger than life, you know, luminary figure, you know, in Africa's history and coming and doing something which personally to them was very disappointing. And then when he actually was able to acknowledge and they were they were quite quite heartwarmed by that. You gave me the chills to that story, which I, which I've never heard before. I mean, so I, I think, you know, the reason that I'm glad we're having this conversation is I think when you dissect the iconic characters, the iconic failures and iconic successes in history then we can realize these are all possible avenues for, you know, for young adults and, you know, older adults as well in terms of reaching these. And if we don't show the warts and the flaws and we don't show the friction that they experience and you only see just the highlights in terms of their successes, then they become unreachable, unattainable positions to happen there. And I've always thought of, I've sort of had this dream of creating a curriculum on principled rebellion for, um, for grade school. And the idea is we would talk about Martin Luther King's um, transgressions in his romantic in his romantic life. And we would talk about, you know, how Gandhi basically abandoned his children and spent almost no time with them focusing on, you know, the country writ large. And, and we would talk about all the problems and their their jagged personality profile of psychological strengths and weaknesses. And so when kids would take personality tests, I mean, this is what I'm future oriented. When kids yeah. take personality tests, they could say your profile with all of your flaws, is very similar to a young Mandela. And it's very similar to, you know, Condoleezza Rice. And it's very similar to, you know, uh, you know George Bush Sr. in terms of how and, – and it's it's not as if you should focus just on your flaws. It's this combination, this holistic nature of who you are where you you will fall into the same pitfalls that they did and have the same potential for success as they had. And when we – when we whitewash it and just focus on as if it was a linear path, unlike the, you know, what you wrote about Mandela, then it seems as if there's a qualitative difference between them and the rest of us. And I think that's a, a mistaken way to take away agency and potential in humans around us. So true. So true. You, you like to do counterfactual thinking. I, I call them like thought experiments, you know. And uh, so I I like to do similar thought experiments and to build on what you just said, one other kind of thought experiment sometimes that I've found very helpful is to like uh, in my mind mentally, 
you know, have somebody leave the planet, you know, just die before the high point comes, you know, so what if like Lincoln had passed away, you know, before uh, he became president or Churchill, you know, who uh, only became prime minister in his 60s, you know, uh, what if he died, you know, just a year before, would that have made them a completely different human being from who they were? I mean, clearly not. They were fundamentally that human being, which was in a state, who was in a state of evolution, but who just happened to be at the right place at the right time to bring their personality and their character to bear on a certain, you know, matter of the day. Um, and we might remember them for that little, little moment, but, but actually maybe everything they've done until then was like a preparation for that moment. That's, those are actually more or less Churchill's words. When he was entering 10 Downing Street, you know, in that epic moment where, you know, Neville Chamberlain has resigned and Hitler's on the ascendancy and the country's in crisis and they're turning to this man who was the only one who over the last 10 years was like, you know, kind of like trying to warn them that, look, be careful, you can't trust Hitler and nobody else was paying attention to that. Now he enters the White, uh, the, the 10 Downing Street after being, you know, kind of like eliminated from the corridors of power for the last, you know, many years. And he said, you know, it seems to me in that moment that everything that I had done until that moment was like a preparation, you know, for this day. And of course, you know, when right. you look back at history, I mean, it seems like that was what the universe was hopefully conspiring to do is like prepare him for that moment to help help the world out. Oh my God, Tendra, this is like a dream. This is like a dream conversation. My head is going in, in 7,000 different directions right now. I want to bring it to an area where it's less intense than politics. Just think about creators in general, right? So just think about your writers and your poets and everyone out there who's listening, who's working on a blog post or a book that happens there. And and you can ask yourself with the counterfactuals, as you're saying, of people like Jim Morrison. I grew up like loving the doors as a kid, even though it was a little bit before my time. And then his his origin story was his first live concert at the Whiskey A Go Go in LA. He was so nervous in terms of his public speaking and felt so unqualified to be the lead man for a band that he didn't face the audience. He faced his drummer for, over the course of the entire concert. And so here's the counterfactual. What if at that moment people were booing him and throwing beer cans at Jim Morrison's back as he was on stage and was pushed off? He created the same level of music, but it didn't have the worldwide appeal where you know, kids like me who grew up in the 80s still had a poster of him on his wall. Would he still be an amazing creator? And I would argue that the social approval and the sheer number of followers is not the indication of the quality of your work. The work speaks for itself. And it's worthwhile to think about how many of our metrics as an individual are focusing on the acclaim that we achieve as opposed to the quality of the work itself, where that's the only thing that we really have control over. That's amazing. Now you got me all sparked up. I love where you're going with this. And I have to, I mean, you know, I want to talk more about your book and it's got like amazing stuff in it, guys. For all of us listening, if you've got any interest in either becoming or supporting growth and change yourself or in, um, you know, helping, you know, others in your organization, in your family and beyond, take on that mantle of uh, positively pushing the world forward in a new direction I highly recommend right? Todd, Todd Cashton's book, um, The Art of Insubordination, which is um, the catalyst for this conversation. But just uh, just being sparked by what you just said, Todd, are you familiar with, um, you know, Sixto Rodriguez? No. Okay, so there was a movie, a documentary that came out a while ago called Sugarman. And, um, you know, I highly, highly, highly recommend it if, if, if you can. 
And uh, I almost now like don't want to give it away. All right. So since you haven't watched it, um, I'm not gonna maybe get to the punchline here. Oh but, wait, wait, uh, wait. Searching for Sugarman is that? Yeah, that yeah. Searching for Sugarman. Oh yeah. Oh no. That's I, I think I okay, wrote okay. an article of saying that's one of my favorite documentaries of all time. No, yeah. Same with me. Same with me. Same with me. So you know then where I'm going with this, right? In, in the context of what you just said, like if you look at his life, I mean, it is a perfect example of what you just said because he produced such beautiful music, such beautiful music. But for some reason, in the path dependency of how the universe unfolds, right, he ended up not being really recognized for it. And he ended up taking on a very humble profession at some point later in his life, moving on from music. And yet we know what glorious music he made. And there's, of course, a punch, you know, kind of like a, a, a kind of a really sweet ending to the story, which for those of our listeners who haven't watched the movie yet, let him just go out and watch it rather than doing a spoiler for them, right? I mean, you know, it doesn't it doesn't give it away to say is that luck found him later in life where it completely changed um, the reception to his music. And the only difference was, was that it just got into the right number of hands. And it's and it's it's I mean, it speaks to the idea of I have I have all these college students that I teach every single year. I mean, hundreds of students have passed through my science of well-being class over the past 23 years. Right. And we talk about the science of love and meaning and purpose and friendships and uh, positive emotions, the benefits of negative emotions. And so many of them are so afraid to pursue really large aspirational goals because they say, nobody gave me the podium and nobody, nobody's given me the opportunity. And what I regularly try to impart on them is it's very few people that are told by a record label or by, you know, Penguin or Random House that, you know, we've now anointed you as you are officially an author. We've anointed you as you are officially a musician is that just do the work and, you know, do your best to get to get it in as many hands as possible. And don't allow the random luck factor be the determinant of how you decide what you're going to do with your life, but really try to figure out like, what is it that you're good at? What is your unique background history of positive and negative life events, people that you've interacted with, um, books that you've read. Everyone on the history of the of the earth has created a original perspective by al amalgamating all of this information and experiences. And so that novelty and that originality, if you don't unleash it and you only allow social pressure to decide what you're doing, you have basically eviscerated your your original human potential. And that's why, you know, it's in the denominator as the barrier to principled rebels and innovators and norm shifters and norm breakers is the social pressure prevents you from seeing the chasm between how you see the world differently and potentially better and what everyone else is suggesting you should say and do. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. I, I, I want to read a quote uh, from you, Todd, um, which speaks to what you're just saying. And I, I really love it. You know, you say nonconformity is a vital part of being human, a potential consequence of our inherent individuality. We all possess a unique genotype, life history and personality profile. Our mix of interests, aspirations and social relationships are different from anyone else's. Remember that what will most benefit the world is not what you share in common with others, but what sets you apart. Push hard into your uniqueness and help others do the same. Do it boldly and compassionately. Whether you succeed or not, it's the only way to reach your human potential. Uh, I thought that was beautiful. No, I, I appreciate that. I mean, just, just think of this. You and I have never spoken one word to each other, even by 
you know, email, phone, any contact. And because we, while we're, we're reading and learning about the same characters in history, there's a slight difference because, you know, if you went through our mental arsenal of what we read, how we talked about it, how people asked us questions, how we responded to those questions, we collected a different arsenal of information. And so, and then when, when the two of us collide, as we're doing live right now, what happens is two people are learning not just necessarily information, but, oh, that's a different vantage point and angle for looking at this topic. And that's what I think people are often missing in societal conversations where speed, take, speed takes precedence over knowledge and wisdom, is that you, you cling prematurely to a singular vantage point of a topic or an issue or most, most problematically a person in terms of whether they, there's a thumbs up or thumbs down to an individual. And we don't spend the time thinking about and asking questions and asking questions, even, you know, our own mental chatter about, do I think I have a sufficient evidence to decide on this issue? And then what evidence would change my mind and what questions should I be asking? And what questions have I ignored to reach a comfortable sense of certainty about an issue that is very complicated and uncertain by nature? Yeah. I've been working on uh, getting my uh, first you know, book uh, written uh, over the last few years. It's been a 15-year, almost like labor of love for me. It's actually being published in three months' time. Um, and it speaks to similar themes, you know, to the kinds of things that you're uh, clearly very invested in as well. You have a class on well-being. I've, got, I've had a class on personal leadership, and I call it in success, at the Business School of Columbia. And anyway, uh, as I was going through it, you know, um, I reached a point where, um, you know it, because you've published, you know, much more than I have, where you hand over the final, you know, fully edited, proof and everything manuscript back to the publisher. And uh, now it's in their hands to take it to the finish line. And, you know, uh, Todd, like the, 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 um, the immediate sort of like inner kind of reaction I had to that moment where I was handing it over to them, uh, a little bit of it was relief. Uh, but then I also had this feeling like, you know what, I think I can die in peace now. Uh, of course, I'm going to miss my wife. I'm going to miss my daughter. I'm going to you know, miss this, miss that. But I feel like I can die in peace. Like what happens after that in terms of will people actually read it um, and all of that to me was not as critical as in just doing my best to get something codified around what I think is a window into truth, trying to do it in a way that was infused with beauty and make it as timeless as possible. And then it made me realize that actually there are all these examples of people whose creative work, let's say, or scientific work has gained steam and recognition or whose political theories, what have you, have gained recognition um, but like years after they've actually died. Yeah. And, uh, and I was just thinking like, wow, you know, um, should that have made them any less satisfied or rewarded uh, than if they had actually lived through their own success? First of all, I love your turn of language. Most importantly, congratulations, because having written a few of these, and this one was, I was six years in monk mode. Um, namaste for completing the book and, and, and also mm -hmm. reaching that, state of equanimity, which not every author has. There's, there's, there, there are too many authors, and if they're listening now, is I wish them to have your state of mind at the end of finishing the book as opposed to, okay, now I must move to the next stage of trying to go for the arbitrary bestseller list, which we know is an algorithm that some people already know how to break, and it's not always ethical for how people do it that way. That's not you. Cool. You've written bestsellers, so maybe you're going to teach me the algorithm. <laughs> yeah. No. No. I mean, you know, it's it's um, 
you know, you always wish you can get into more hands, but it's really of when you get the individual messages from people where this, I adopted these principles and practices and it's changed my relationship with my child and it's changed my relationship with my organization or I've decided I am going to be a whistleblower and I'm going to speak something about this police yeah. precinct that I work at. I've been getting those messages in just, in just oh, over 10 beautiful. days. That's beautiful. And the idea of people that are going to be whistleblowers and going to take the step forward as opposed to avoiding and cowering in the dark because of something I wrote and 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 speak their piece about dysfunction. I mean, that's why I wrote the book. I mean, that's yeah. I mean, that's that's you know, the stories are fun, they're fun to read. It's it's great to share them, but for someone to have feel they have a plan of action from reading this, I mean, that's that's like that's the, you know, the aesthetic chills start to kick in. Ah, oh, that's beautiful. Um, I'm so happy that um, you're getting that kind of response, uh, deservedly so. I can see so much in this book that could really illuminate the path for so many. Um, you know, I want to highlight for our uh, listeners that um, you and I, you know, in this conversation, taken it into more of the frame of, uh, you know, what it means originally for you to have that sort of vision and authentically feel, you know, what it is that you want for the world and, you know, put it out there. But um, you got in, in the book, um, under that contribution part of your formula, right? Some really thoughtful ideas around how to be more tactful and strategic and, you know, attentive to like how to really, you know, take people with you on that journey and to gain buy-in and support from the right stakeholders and, you know, break down resistance and, and think about the right timing and, you know, like, you know, sense that social pressure that may be pushing back at you and kind of navigate through that in the right way to build a bridge from today to that tomorrow you want to create, right? And so I want to highlight that for our, for our listeners that there's a lot of wisdom on, on those topics in the books, which I, I really respect because there's that work to be done as well, right? To the extent that you want to go beyond just the pure act of creation, uh, as you've highlighted, to the actual practical impact, you know, that there's some hard work to be done. Um, can you speak to like maybe one of those... Um, you know, kind of like suggestions that you, you have for, for us as to something that many people don't really think about um, in their own well-intentioned aspiration to want to be like, you know, a constructive, um, you know, uh, disruptor, right, of things, a um, principled insubordinator, right? Like, uh, can, can you talk about one of the things that people tend to not do, which if they did, you know, they might just up their chances of, uh, of success? Yeah, no, sure. And actually, um, it's, I mean, as we're speaking right now, I mean, we have the, you know, the invasion of Russia and Ukraine. This is very relevant to that. A lot of people are putting the Ukrainian flag in their social media and a lot of people are um, posting messages of support for them. You know, one of the things that to gain traction on on a, a mission or a, a missive that you're focusing on is we know that from 97 studies of minority influence, the greatest predictor that a message can actually influence other people is the consistency of that message. Now, but there's a really important piece that people get wrong. Most people do a, re they replicate the same message over and over where it's, um, you know, the Ukrainian president is incredible. Um, Ukraine is, is, is a victim and they are actually being invaded. So there, there, you know, there's lots of language about not saying it's a war, it's an invasion and repeating this over and over. And what happens with that, and we know this from, from science, which makes it difficult to learn sometimes is we habituate and we no longer have an emotional reaction and we don't feel a, a, a compulsion that motivates us to want to engage in a behavior, whether that's giving money or um, donating goods, or in some case, veterans are now traveling from other countries to go to Ukraine. 
So one of the things that we know from the research is consistency is important, but repetition interferes with consistency. So you want consistency, but slightly novel modifications of how that message is displayed. So in terms of practicality, you're talking about making sure that you're talking about different stories in detail, making sure you're switching between video, video footage and words, making sure that you're talking about your personal impact because of your ancestral linkage to Ukraine versus more more um, objectively about what's going on in the world itself. So going from the personal to going to the more global for talking about these things. And when you do that, you prevent people from habituating to the message, but you're still staying on task. And so I would argue that one of the problems that the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, had is that they kept beating people over with the singular message without the precise details of what do you do with this phrase? What do you do with this, this symbol? And because of that, people habituated and they were very engaged in the beginning and then very slowly and then very quickly, people abandoned the cause and moved on to something else that happened there because there wasn't that very clear, consistent, what is the singular, easy ways to take action? And it just became a slogan that, to, that people tuned out towards. Thank you. That was actually quite an education for me as well. Yeah, that's a beautiful thought. Beautiful thought. Let me sort of throw out one idea to you and see, see, see how this sticks um, or not. Um, so... One of the things that I've been intrigued about is how some of these change makers, you know, they um, kind of like sought to create a climate of unconditional respect, uh, even with their opponents, uh, even with perhaps those that they were really um, charging with uh, wrong behavior and the need to kind of correct, you know, a certain uh, certain wrong. But they still manifested, you know, a certain amount of, if you want to call it almost like love you know, in the way they dealt with them. You know, as a good example, I mean, Gandhi would actually constantly say, look, when I'm fighting for India's independence, I'm not asking for anything which is going to be in the interest of India and not in the interest of Britons. Um, I actually think that, you know, the British people are wonderful people, good-hearted people, nice people. And that's why they should walk away from India because actually they're engaging in a form of moral corruption of their own soul, when they are doing this kind of an imperial rule over India, you know, um, extracting so much economic and other, you know, kind of resources from India to enrich their own coffers, it's not good for them. And so, um, so, so that is, you know, that is one example of that, that here he was fighting the British system, fighting British rule in India, but talking of it, at, you know, and, and then Martin Luther King was very inspired by, by Gandhi and his peaceful revolution. And he brought the same ideas here to the West as well, that, you know, in the fight for, you know, uh, you know justice and uh, civil liberties, that um, it was actually something that would ennoble not just the blacks, but the whites in, in what it's going for, right? And I, I sometimes find that in the movements we've had in more recent years, we've lost a little bit of that ethos. And uh, wouldn't it be nice if um, we could explore this more opening of the heart to, to, uh, to as many, if not all, the participants in this enterprise? Yeah, I, I didn't know that about Gandhi. I, I'm, I'm going to read up more on that because that's actually very interesting. So one of the things that you're describing, which is really powerful and is not something you're seeing often in modern, modern social advocacy, is they did not dehumanize the opponents. And they recognized that there is... There is a there's a public version of them that's engaging in 
wrongful language, wrongful acts, or they actually haven't done anything explicitly wrong, but they are part of the group that's problematic. And Gandhi kind of acknowledged, like, listen, I'm giving you moral license to change because I can see that there's moral virtue and goodness inside you. And I, and I feel like you can understand that this isn't the only way of doing things. And that's that's not what we hear, right? The mm-hmm. first, uh, for these messages, it's, it's to make it into zero-sum games and probably even more precisely is to start to label cat label and categorize people as good or bad as opposed yeah. to their to use your phrasing from before they're on a complicated spiritual journey in terms of figuring out what is their value system and what are they doing now that can be pointed out is less advantageous not just to the group that they're being problematic towards but also just to honor themselves and honor their ancestors and honor just society at writ large and we, we really like to dehumanize our opponents, and it feels good. It makes your group tighter, cohesive, harmonious, and feel as if you're stronger. But what it does is you've now increased the number. You've lost out on potential allies, and you've increased unnecessary detractors by having that view. And we just should acknowledge the trade-off. Do you want to choose the the group solidarity and pleasure of having really strong nemeses, or do you want to open up the possibility that some of those so-called detractors might end up being allies if you, you know, if you produce a different message that actually invites them in as for their humanity, not necessarily for their recent behaviors. Wow. Excellent. I mean, I, I, I'm uh, really in sync with this. Let me, let me test uh, a certain thesis with you. Tell me what you think. I've, um, you know, shared a version of this in my book, and um, you're much more deeply steeped in the science. So, so, so I'd be curious to see what what you think. Which is, uh, where does this come from? This uh, quick rush to label people and judge people, and then um, create an us versus them, right? And one thesis I have is that it starts from just our relationships, um, you know, at home, and then in our circle of friends, and in society, and in school, and and beyond, and. Um, um, you know, for those of us who in our brains um, have created a certain sort of, if you want to call it, you know, neural wirings that, um, you know, we um, park some people into a space where we see that them as bad and then we judge them. Um, and perhaps in the most extreme cases, we even hate them. You know, is it possible that what then that does is uh, have us... Um, disposed unconsciously towards very quickly making a judgment call and um, you know every now and then putting people into that space in our brain where we are holding them in a very um, unflattering light and um, perhaps you know experiencing certain you know unhealthy emotions you know uh, when we think about them and um, when we when we judge them um, and perhaps even hate them Um, and so you know, and then it starts to affect everything. Um, you know, I've seen people as, you know, as much as I, who really struggle at times with personal relationships uh, of a very intimate kind, because some of those people are the very people who they feel hurt by, or they feel not fully, you know, um, not fully cared for by. And in those moments, you know, those people turn to be ones that they hate, or they dislike, or they judge as bad people. Everything from like, who you see as bad in society at large, to how it starts to affect in some ways the psychology of your you know personal relationships even your intimate relationships uh, all coming from that same idea of real estate in your brain 
that you have built over time to specialize in the act of labeling, judging, and perhaps in the most extreme cases, even hating? And what if you were working, you know, towards eliminating, you know, that logic in your brain and just kind of getting your brain to be at a place where you can challenge and, you know, push back on behaviors, but without uh, sweeping judgments of people. Anyway, thoughts? Well, Hatendra, this is a great teaser for your book. So I'm glad everyone knows that they have to pick up your book. It's, it's a fantastic thesis. It's exactly what the world needs. And I'll be one of the first people picking it up. Um, is there a tentative title of your book? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the book is called Inner Mastery, Outer Impact. You do it greatly, Todd, in your book uh, as well, The which I love, okay, about what you've done. We haven't talked about it so far. The fact that, you know, if you want to be an agent of positive change, if you want to be this principal, you know, form of insubordination that you can put out there in the world, that whistleblower who's written to you, you've got to do the inner work just as much as the as the outer work, right? And and, and you, you've, uh, you know, uh, caught, you know, captured some of those ideas of the emotional and cognitive strength we need to build from within very well. Uh, so anyway, so, so, so my book is really in some ways, a, you know, of, of a kindred, you know, kind of, you know, kind of just uh, looking at both the inner and the outer conditions uh, for success. No, no, it's it's great. I mean, I think that this, the concise answer is, is there is a downloading of cultural scripts and information, and there is, we can't ignore a few million years of evolution, how it's affected our brain, where we have a three pound prediction machine. And the, the the main goal of a three pound brain in not too large of a body is we're trying to manage uncertainty. And one of the quick ways that our brain tries to manage uncertainty is to quickly categorize people into threats and opportunities and friends and foes. And so we know, for example, from research that in a mere, I think it's five seconds, in five seconds of observing another human being, people tend to be 65 to 75% accurate in depicting what someone's sexual orientation is. And we know that in when someone of so someone of a particular race, when they look at a crowd of individuals and they see only a small number of people in that crowd that resembles their race, that they quickly find those people and they don't see the better very heterogeneous faces and images of everyone else that's around the people that look like our race. So you have this own race effect where everyone else is a sea of just a color. And those people that resemble your race, you see their distinctive qualities of like, oh, that person's muscular. Oh, that person looks like they're intelligent. Oh, that person, I can see by their posture that they look very confident in their skin. And the other the other race, the large number in the crowd, we just view them as a blob of others. We, we do this othering. And our, brain, and our brain does this automatically. So, you know, one of the things that we have to do is this is our biological machinery. We down we download this software from the culture. And this, while both those things are true, we can train ourselves to hold more loosely this cultural information. Not that it's easy to do. And we can be more cognizant of how our brain operates. Not that that's easy to do. And from that, we can reduce our biases, our prejudices and have you know, this, as you're describing, this kind of greater sense of common humanity where we're less inclined to categorize people quickly and we're more likely to update our beliefs as we acquire information showing that the person that I initially depicted as a bad person, actually, they had a tough background and I can actually, and I can actually can appreciate that and I can give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt and offer them opportunities to alter their behavior 
and have this, you know, have this opportunity for um, second chances and third chances because they they had the the misfortune of having an abuseful or neglective child rearing, and that's that's a, a blemish on society, and this is the consequences of uh, an impoverished environment in the early years. Mm-hmm. Uh, how beautiful! You've just opened us up on the kind of uh, path of empathy as a key part, you know, of this of this exchange as well. Empathizing with your enemy, you know, opponents, enemies, adversaries, people you think are on the opposite side, right? I'm hearing you say, how beautiful, uh, folks. Um, I also want to highlight that uh, you know, if you do get uh, Todd's book, then do make sure you read it all the way to the very end, including the acknowledgments at the end. You share more a little bit about your personal journey and personal story. In that uh, in that little piece at the end, which I thought was uh, yeah, very gracious of you to uh, you know to to hold back, but but to ultimately bring that up in that final piece, uh, very beautifully told as well. No, I appreciate that. I, I debated starting the book by talking about um, my background, my demographics, and people. You know, you know, there, there are lots of arguments that occur right now of um, you know as someone that looks like me, which is you know white, middle aged, and heterosexual, and middle income that who am I to be speaking um, to tell people that are minorities in the world of how to be influential? And I would offer, as you said, the thought experiment, which was what if I spent six years, 25 years of research, six years focused directly on this book, collecting information about how minorities can be influential and the pathway of doing that. And I held back because I wasn't the right sex, gender, race for doing that. I mean, wouldn't that be equally, if not more problematic to do that? So it's, it's worth, you know, one of the things that you can see in this conversation is I think we have to ask more questions and be a little bit more, have provocations of thinking of, well, what if, you know, what if, what if we banned all of the people that aren't matches between audiences and people that have some level of expertise on a topic because, and look for people that are only matches, what will that do to the reservoir of knowledge and wisdom that you could tap into? And for me, um, I, I want to have as few barriers of entry as possible for people to reach their full potential. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I look at the Dalai Lama as an example of somebody who's been so broadly embraced uh, in recent times in the West as a, you know, exemplar of, you know, uh, kindness, compassion, you know, uh, just uh, care. Um, and, uh, you know, if you think about how he's grown up and um, how he lives most of his days, most of his life, you know, it's in a certain set of robes uh, surrounded by people who look pretty much like him and who are pretty much from the same uh, you know, culture and the same religious teaching and the same gender, you know, also for the most part, right? And uh, and yet he has this capacity to make each of us feel very understood and very connected with. So there's clearly got to be something in the human condition that can transcend, you know, just, uh, you know, just, just by virtue of that capacity to tune into what you might call your best self or your core or your highest potential within and make it much more about the human to human, isn't it? Um, and, and should we even limit ourselves just to human, you know? I mean, isn't it that today there's a crying need for us to feel a sense of spiritual connection almost with the, the living, throbbing planet, you know, uh, itself at large, isn't it? I love the, uh, the examples you give and the anecdotes and the, the individuals you're mentioning. I mean, you were just lighting up my brain. I mean, I, I think it's a great example for the Dalai Lama. And you go back to your example of Churchill. Um, mm do we respond differently because of his background and what he looked like or is of a, uh, Hey, listen, namaste for uh, helping <laughs> yeah. putting an end to world war two. 
Yeah, so beautiful. You know, I mean, by the way, there's one more th thought on that that I, I want to sort of like, you know, just like, you know, have us discuss, which is it's also a little bit limiting when we only see people on the basis of some of these more um, popular modern day social demographics. Because um, if you look at somebody like Martin Luther King, you know, very influenced by Gandhi, right? If you look at Gandhi, very influenced by the transcendentalists here in the United States. If you look at the transcendentalists, very influenced in part by the Bhagavad Gita, you know, India's like spiritual epic, right? Okay, so like now, you know, <laughs> can one actually claim that it is only that particular race or gender or something right. that has like ownership over Gandhi or ownership right. over the transcendentalists or, you know, I mean, I mean, like it's, I, I forget who it was, Walt Whitman or somebody who said like, I contain multitudes. Yeah, yeah. It's become a, a very popular more apropos phrasing than ever because everybody wants to see the person in front of them as a singular identity. And it's, it's always a falsehood, right? Just, just, just think about it. There is no person ever on the history of earth who has been, their sole identity has been their nationality or what they look like because they have interests, they have values, they have preferences, they have habits, they have personalities, they have social networks. And it, it just, you you can't you you cannot effectively or efficiently well you can do it efficiently you cannot effectively describe a person by not capturing this level of complexity and the problem is we don't have the time to do a comprehensive download because we're not spending 37 hours of you know very concentrated conversation with no distractions and because of that we have to think about how do we work with stereotypes and how do we constantly update them every little bit of information that we collect, you know, in terms of trusting, but verifying and updating as we go. Yeah. Yeah. I realize we are, um, you know, short in time and what is, um, you know, such a rich and um, ever expanding conversation around so many beautiful themes. Uh, Todd, I'm so grateful to have uh, you spend this hour with us uh, at an you know, important time in having you propagate such an important message, you know, to the world with this, with this book. Now that you have uh, wrapped up this uh, epic uh, six-year journey, uh, of course, you know, I can expect that you'll be, you know, preoccupied for the very near term in getting this message more out there. But when you start having a few moments to just um, envision kind of like your next chapter, what would that be for you? Any, any sort of... Uh, Early, early, you know, sense that you have as to where you'd want to pour your energies and um, in terms of your professional priorities in the years ahead. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, this this one is, I think, this book, I think, is going to change my life trajectory for what I focus on for the rest of my life. Is I want to really help people to find um, their sense of courage, their sense of curiosity, their sense of intellectual humility, and to really focus on um, what are the paths to being influential without being you know, anointed by someone is you now have the power, you now have the stage to actually do something. Um, that's, that's, it's a never ending journey, but you know, the next stage that I want to do, and I, I kind of referenced it by, by designing a class, a classroom for this, for this, for this content for younger individuals is um, I think I want to start moving to children's books and actually creating, getting the science to younger adults Um you know, as young as ages five and six and kind of um, helping helping children who don't have the fortune of having parental figures who are really espousing moral development, social development, and kind of making sure I can directly influence them by getting a book in their hands. 
John, I love this idea that you are at this stage seeking to take all this knowledge and wisdom and ideas and inspiration you have and take it to that very um, early stage of human life where uh, so many of our ways of thinking and being and doing get seeded in us, you know, with, with kids. Beautiful quest. I wish you all the, all the best as you take on this next chapter in your career and life. And I look forward to having our paths intersect again. So, my friends, what are we taking away from this conversation with Todd? It was so fluid. I have to take a moment to just like catch my breath. Um, here are some of the things that I'm taking away from it. One is his notion that, look, society is a work in progress. There's a lot of stuff that is broken and needs to be fixed today. But let us also recognize that we have, in so many meaningful ways, advanced from where we were in the yesteryears. And what happens is that over time, as he says, as we progress across history, our lens becomes, he says, more molecular at discovering smaller and smaller problems that we've got issues with. Uh, now, you know, some of the problems that we have around us are not small by any measure, but relative to where like humanity was like 100, 200, 500 years ago. You know, that's what he's talking about. And I love that insight about how society is just raising its own standards in beautiful ways. Um, he talks about the fact that each of us, you know, is being invited in some ways to be a principal rebel, right? He talks about the sphere of influence that you have and I have. And it may not be that we can, you know, affect change at some kind of huge societal level, but within our own communities, within our own organizations, in our own neighborhoods, in our own families, wherever it is that we can. And he talks about how there are small behaviors that we engage in, which actually accumulate over time to creating massive societal change. It wasn't any just one person who waved some magic wand. It was multiple people who started to see a certain newer possibility of where humanity could go. And within their own communities, they were starting to become those kinds of agents of rebellious change. And then gradually enough of them you know, came up you know, into sharp relief that the change happened. So I love this idea of doing it within your sphere of influence. But what you don't realize is that there are other allies you have in other parts of the community in the world. And gradually, that's how change gets affected bottom up. He has this beautiful formula for how to be a principal rebel. Deviance, authenticity, contribution divided by social pressure. Deviance being about sort of the, the, the core instinct you have that something is not right, you know, and you're deviating from that norm. Authenticity being that it has to come from a place deeply felt by you, something that is authentic to you and to your values. And contribution being like, I'm going to do this in the service of, not because I'm cynical or because I'm just kind of negative or judging, but in the service of, in a respectful way, advancing humanity. And social pressure, meaning that I want to be mindful that, you know, I might be swimming upstream in many ways, and yet I'm going to keep finding some method, some strategic approach through which to actually affect that kind of you know, impact that I want. Um, and that means that we have to make change happen. And this is my next takeaway in small steps. Um, it is a slow, as he calls, inexorable, gradual change that actually is more able to stick as opposed to, you know, a situation that we are seeking to like, just like destroy the system by being just like very pushy about a certain change that the world may not be in a position ready to accept in the moment. And so what are those small steps that we can take? People aren't, you know, at times ready to embrace change, you know, whole hog because, you know, there's probably um, a lack of exposure, you know, from them and things that you know a lot about and they have to be gradually opened up in their hearts and minds to go down that path. You know, that notion of private values is public values that I offered that, that, you know, private values are things that you can you know, just make peace with the fact that the world may be different from you and that's okay. These are things you just want to hold on to in your own journey. But public values are the ones that you really want to kind of find a way to strategically rebel about. 
we talked about how people are works in progress, that we have to create the space for people to evolve, even our detractors, you know, leaders who may have at some point said or done something that you really feel is antithetical to your values, but who may over time acknowledge and recognize and move on and, you know, become a new version of themselves. And, you know, that is the only way we can actually, you know, affect change and bring forth detractors into our camp and make them our allies gradually over time as that change comes to them. And, and when we see that in the arc of some of these iconic leaders from history, et cetera, that they were actually, you know, very flawed. And then they gradually started to polish, in a sense, their the character that it allows us to realize that, look, even we can sometimes be flawed and make mistakes. And that doesn't mean that we don't have the right to actually aspire for that mantle of, you know, if you want to call it like greatness and a hero's journey as well. Another takeaway for me was the distinction between social approval versus like the pure quality of your work. And we often see as a measure of success, social approval, the measure of progress. But, but actually, you know, what he's highlighting, Todd, is that focus on who you are, what your essence is, what your potential is, and the quality of the work that you are seeking to offer up to the world. And sometimes it'll take time, you know, before it gets to gather steam. And sometimes it'll only gather steam in a certain community. But if lots of us are doing that, then over time, great things happen, not to let us in any way get digressed or diluted by, you know, social demands out there that are not in conformity with what we feel we are offering to the world as our core pure message from the inside. You know, when you do encounter resistance, when you do have people who are pushing back at you, he, he talked about how it's important to, in those moments, not quickly judge them, you know, and just kind of label them as like, you know, these are the resistors, but to open yourself up to deep discovery, you know, with the right kinds of questions about are there any facets of truth that they're holding in addition to your facets of truth that actually might make a more whole truth emerge. He talked about there, therefore, the importance of not dehumanizing your opponents, but actually having deep empathy for them, you know, understanding where they're coming from, what journey they have made in life. And when you do that, when you have that empathy and when you restrict yourself from dehumanizing, you create the conditions where, you know, these distractors can over time become, become allies, you know, of you as well, right? And then lastly, we spoke about this idea that, you know, um, when we offer these thoughts, ideas, prescriptions, when we want to there, be there to help support, you know, each other, you know, this is the thesis that Todd and I were evolving. You can give it your own thought. You don't have to be from the same box as the other person from a socio-demographic, like, identity standpoint, because it's a human-to-human -human journey. And sure enough, if a Dalai Lama can be seen as a model of empathy and compassion around the world, bearing robes that are quite alien to you and me in terms of a form and dress and surrounding himself by other Tibetan monks, Buddhist monks, well, then that means that that potential and power is there in each of us to embrace you know, the full diversity of the human condition around the world without necessarily always having had to be brought up in those communities or having lived those experiences in those communities because intuitively and in some ways, even logically, when you think about the cross-fertilization of experiences, the cross-flows of inspiration that have happened over the years, like I was sharing about Martin Luther King and Gandhi. So this idea that uh, it's not about boxes. That's my last takeaway. I hope you enjoyed and got the same quality of impact and inspiration as I did from Todd.